Well, here we are, my friends. We are at the end of Gospel Camp. Well, at least we'll be at the end in a few hours, but this is the last lesson that I will be given. It's been an absolute joy and privilege to be here. Special thanks to the Jenkins family and uh, all the people who made this weekend possible. Let's all give them a round of applause, just, just by way of conclusion. Yeah, I know that hosts typically don't like being, you know, center of attention and receiving that kind of uh, ovation. But nevertheless, I think it's necessary because we've had a great time together. I'm sure all of you guys have had a really good time. I can see y'all out there laughing and playing. And I really hope and pray that you'll think back to this weekend for years to come. It's a time not only a great experience with friends, gaga ball, slip and slide, that crazy dodgeball game that y'all played on the slip and slide. But most importantly, my prayer is that this weekend, you look back years from now and you say, I saw the glory of God in Scripture as I contemplated the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in a way that's fitting for drawing this series to a conclusion, that's going to be at the epicenter of what we study during our time together over the next 45 minutes or so. Just by way of review, in verses 1 and 2, we observed how the gospel is reserved for sinners. Verses 1 and 2, the gospel is reserved for sinners. That was the main theme that we talked about to get our weekend kicked off. Secondly, in verses 3 to 6, we examined how the gospel is rooted in eternity past. Gospel rooted in eternity past as described by Paul in verses 3 through 6. And then this morning, as you'll recall from a few hours ago, we saw from verses 7 to 10 that the Gospel is realized in Jesus Christ. So that's where we've been so far. But really undergirding each of those previous lessons, there was a theme that was made clear through contemplating the Gospel being reserved for sinners, the Gospel being rooted in eternity past, and the gospel being realized in Jesus Christ. And that theme that has been undergirding those other themes is now going to be at the forefront of our focus in verses 11 to 14. That theme is described in this way. You should see it also in your workbooks. Fourth theme, and really the main theme of everything we've talked about this weekend, is this. The gospel is revelation of God's glory. The gospel is revelation of God's glory. The the gospel is about fundamentally the glory of God. That is what we have been considering really up to this point in gospel camp. And again, I'm so grateful that we get to conclude our time together in the study of God's word by considering with special focus how God's glory is manifested in the salvation of sinners like you and me. So with that in mind, by way of introduction, let's once more read the totality of Ephesians 1, verses 1 to 14. Ephesians 1, verses 1 to 14. If you're like me, this may become one of your favorite texts of Scripture. Never gets old reading through it. Remember, this was all one lengthy declaration of praise and thanksgiving to God from the Apostle Paul writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He, he was overflowing with adoration for the God of His salvation. I pray that will be the testimony of our hearts as we now read this text for the final time this week. And you follow along with me in your copy of God's Word as we begin in verse 1. 
Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, God predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved, in Christ. We have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, He made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His kind intention, which He purposed in Christ, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, whether things in the heavens or things on the earth. In Christ also, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of His glory. In Christ, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of His glory. And this is the Word of the living God. May He write its eternal truths upon our hearts once more as we bring Gospel Camp to a close. If somebody were to ask me who I thought was the most Christ-like person that God ever gave to America, I would not hesitate to answer that question by saying, Jonathan Edwards. If somebody were to ask me who is the greatest preacher to have ever preached in America, I would not have to think more than a second to answer that question. I would say that Jonathan Edwards is the greatest preacher to have ever grazed the pulpit in America. But what if we moved outside the realm of piety, devotion, and preaching? What if somebody were to ask me the most brilliant American mind in any discipline, whether it be physics, mathematics, biology, history, or any subject? Again, I would not hesitate. It would have to be Jonathan Edwards. These were the words offered by R.C. Sproul, a man who is widely regarded as one of the most significant preachers and theologians of the past century. In addition to Sproul's glowing reviews about the life and ministry of Jonathan Edwards, previous editions of the Britannica Encyclopedia have heralded Jonathan Edwards as one of the most significant figures to ever live in the United States. In our present day, many secular universities require students to interact with the writings of Edwards, and many historians continue to be amazed by the lasting impact that this figure has had over the past three centuries in the United States. But if these facts haven't captured your attention, then perhaps the following will. By the age of 12, Edwards was so intellectually advanced that he enrolled at Yale University and he graduated at the top of his class in less than four years, being anywhere from five to 12 years younger than his classmates. By the age of 18, 
Edwards had amassed the modern equivalent to a Ph.D., and he was appointed a teaching uh, professorship at Yale at the age of 19. I share these facts with you about Jonathan Edwards and that quote from R.C. Sproul, because many of you here today are between the age of 12 and 18. In other words, it was during your stage of life in which Edwards was already to accomplish so much as a young man. He was rapidly maturing through this season of life. And this observation should cause you to be motivated to pursue your life with excellence and to the glory of God. In fact, it was the glory of God that stood at the heart and soul of what propelled Jonathan Edwards in every aspect of his life and his ministry. I want to take note of one of his most famous works. The abbreviated title of that work is The Resolution of Jonathan Edwards, and the content of that work is a list of 70 goals that Edwards made to help guide his life as he entered into adulthood. At the age of 18 years old, Edwards wrote 70 resolutions that he believed if he was faithful to walking into the steps of these resolutions, he would live a life that brought Praise and honor and glory to God. And notice what he included right at the top of that list of resolutions. This is an 18-year-old follower of Jesus Christ. He wrote this, quote, Resolved that I will do whatever I think to be most to God's glory and my own spiritual good in the whole of my life. Let me ask you this, young person today. Everyone in here, I would assume, is between the age of 11 to probably 17 or 18 years old. Is the driving force of your life today to do whatever it is to be done to the highest degree for the glory of God and your eternal spiritual good? Is that the testimony of your heart and your life here today? My friends... I don't bring this to your attention because Jonathan Edwards is the the ultimate standard by which we measure our lives. That standard is Jesus Christ. But it's very interesting to note that what Edwards had to say and what Edwards realized at such a young age is exactly what we find the Apostle Paul stressing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit here in verses 11 to 14 of Ephesians 1. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit... The Apostle Paul uses the final verses of the opening section in Ephesians to declare God's glory revealed in the Gospel. While this is a theme that Paul has emphatically stressed up to this point through the first ten verses of his letter, he especially drives this home in what we find in verses 11-14. to As we see at the end of verse 12, and as we see at the end of verse 14, We see the key framework laid down by the Apostle Paul for how we should interact with this text and how this text ultimately threads together with everything we've already contemplated over our past three lessons. Notice the recurring phrase found at the bookend of verse 12 and verse 14. Notice it in your Bible. Verse 12, to the praise of His glory. Verse 14, to the praise of His glory. These are the bookends of this text. This is the ultimate, fundamental, chief point that Paul wants to make about the Gospel. 
It's been present in everything he's already said. But in case you've missed it up to this point somehow, you can't miss it anymore. All of salvation and everything that God does is to the praise of His glory. Whether a person is part of the earliest group of those who come to faith in Jesus Christ, their salvation is to the praise of God's glory, just as much as those of us who've come to faith in the 21st century. Our salvation and our lives are just as much for God's glory. And it's because of God's glorious character. Here's the, here's the beauty of it. It's all for God's glory, but God isn't just a megalomaniac. He's a kind and gracious Creator and sustainer of all things. Because of God's glorious character, every believer, past, present, and future, will be the recipients of unending blessings to enjoy for all of eternity future. None being greater than intimate and personal communion with God Himself. We're going to touch on some of these key truths here in this session. Namely, how... We as believers, though all of our life and all of salvation is to the praise of God's glory, we as believers also get some really remarkable blessings from the bounty of God's grace. To help us make sense of some of these details that we're going to unpack in verses 11 to 14, I have two main headings. They should be in your booklet and the section that's geared towards section 4 in your booklet. Two headings. And they really center around those bookends in verse 12 and verse 14. First heading, associated with verse 11 and 12, we're going to see God's glory revealed in the salvation of the earliest believers, earliest Christians, earliest followers of Jesus Christ. Verses 11 to 12, God's glory revealed in the salvation of the earliest believers. Second, verses 13 and 14, we're going to see God's glory revealed in the salvation of later believers, those who would come to faith decades or even centuries or millennia after the earliest believers. Now, by way of preface, I just want to note, there is going to be a lot of overlap between what can be said in reference to the earliest believers and what can be said in reference to the later believers. But Paul really organizes these verses around those two Themes: earliest believers to the glory of God, later believers to the glory of God. So we're going to allow the text to speak for itself, and that is going to be the framework by which we encounter what Paul is setting before us at the tail end of this opening chapter of Ephesians, at least as it pertains to verses 1-14. to So, let's dive in now to the text. Notice verses 11 and 12 again with me in your Bibles, and we'll begin to unpack what he writes in more detail. Verse 11. Paul writes, In Christ also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of His glory. So once again... And if you've paid any attention over the past three lessons, it's going to sound like this is a broken record, but my friends, we need this truth preached to us every day of our lives. Here in verse 11 and 12, just like he's already said before, Paul is stressing the necessity of faith 
for sinners to receive any spiritual blessings from God. Faith is fundamentally necessary for sinners to have their sins forgiven, to be reconciled to their Creator, and then as a result to receive spiritual blessings from His hand. There are absolutely zero spiritual blessings apart from faith in Christ. Now, it should be no surprise to us that Paul continues to develop this theme in verses 11 to 14 of Ephesians 1. He wants to note the Christ-centeredness of salvation, the Christ-centeredness of the Gospel, and the Christ-centeredness of the spiritual blessings that we receive from God. But notice how Paul goes further than that in verse 11. He adds something to the equation that he hasn't quite developed yet up to this point. Did you catch it in verse 11? Those who were the first to hope in Jesus Christ have obtained an inheritance. He's talked about spiritual blessings. He's listed several spiritual blessings from verse 3 onward to this point. But he hasn't talked about the inheritance yet. He, he hasn't mentioned what it is truly that you and I have to enjoy beyond what he's already stated in this passage. He's talking about something else. Something beyond what is explicitly mentioned here in Ephesians 1. So there's two very important questions we need to ask ourselves if we're going to rightly understand this portion of Ephesians 1. First, we need to ask ourselves what Paul means when he uses the term inheritance. We need to understand the term itself. How should inheritance be defined? And then secondly, we need to ask ourselves, what is the actual substance of the inheritance? So what does the word inheritance mean? And then what is the actual stuff that we get in this inheritance? What's its substance? What's its nature? So let's start with the first question. What does the term inheritance mean? What is Paul going for here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? Well, when he uses the Greek term that we get the English word for inheritance, he's, he's referring to something that is a gift that cannot be taken away from somebody. That's what inheritance means in this particular context of Ephesians 1. This term that Paul uses for inheritance simply means to receive a gift that cannot be taken away. For somebody to receive something that can never be nulled and void. In other words, when Paul says that believers have obtained an inheritance, he's saying that God has given His people a gift that they will never lose. They didn't earn it or deserve it, but God, being rich in mercy and loving kindness, has gifted it to them, and it will never be done away with. Now, with this definition in mind, we come to that second question that we need to consider, namely... What is this inheritance? Paul hasn't mentioned it yet. Well, how do we make sense of it? We know what the term means, but what is the nature of the inheritance? Well, unfortunately, we don't have an explicit answer to this question in Ephesians 1, 1-14. So, here's a really good opportunity for me to share with you a very important principle of Bible interpretation. Whenever you study a text, you always start with the words in that text, in the immediate context in that text. That's what we've been doing. We've been going verse by verse, sometimes word by word, through this portion of Ephesians 1. Well, if a word or a term or a concept used in a passage is not explicitly spelled out in that passage, 
We go to other parts of the Bible that talk about that term or that concept, and we use those parts of Scripture to help us make sense of what's being said in the context we're currently looking to. So for this particular instance, we're going to look at other parts of Paul's writings in the New Testament to help us understand what he's saying here about an inheritance. So what does Paul say elsewhere? Well, if we look at all of his writings, and we were to systematize it all under the umbrella of what does Paul mean, how does Paul use this term inheritance, what is he referring to with it, we find there's three primary connotations. I, for the sake of simplicity, I've noted this as three primary gifts. We think of an inheritance as conveyed by Paul in the New Testament. There's three categories of gifts or blessings that fall into this term. I want to walk you through those. We're going to go to several passages that I think will help us make sense and have some further clarity about this reality. First gift. First gift. And it's something that you should be very familiar with up to this point. All Christians inherit spiritual salvation. That's the first key blessing that is ours when Paul makes use of this term inheritance. You and I are going to inherit. We're going to receive spiritual salvation in Christ. And that spiritual salvation, based on the term that Paul uses for inheritance, it was given by the grace of God to us, and it will never be taken away from us. It's ours both now and forevermore. I know that many of you guys were supposed to have read um, Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 10 prior to our third session. I want us to turn back to that passage because that's probably the clearest text that I can think of anyways that pictures the gospel described from our life as an unbeliever to our life as believers. It's every Christian spiritual autobiography. It's Ephesians 2 verses 1 to 10. This is your story and my story of how we came to faith in Christ. And really, it's, it's this text that I believe gets to the heart of why salvation must be understood as revelation of God's glory. It's a great cross-reference to go to. Because we find that there's literally nothing that we brought to our redemption apart from the sin that made our redemption necessary. There's nothing in Ephesians 2, 1-10 through that gives us any grounds for boasting, and it really magnifies the riches of this gift that we've inherited from the triune God. Let's reread this passage. You follow along, there should be a copy in your workbook if you don't have it opened in your Bible. Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 1. Notice this. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and raised us up with Christ 
seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ, so that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. That is our spiritual autobiography, my friends. If you're in Christ, this is exactly how you came to salvation. In verses 1 to 3, we have an explanation of the spiritual state of every human being who's ever lived apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, the sinless Son of God. You can summarize verses 1 to 3 of Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. You can summarize verses 1 to 3 in this way. Who we were. If you're in Christ, that's who you were. If you're here today and you're an unbeliever, that's who you currently are. You're spiritually dead. You're utterly incapable of seeking after God or pleasing God in and of your unregenerate, spiritually dead state. Who we were. Verses 1-3 to of Ephesians 2. Now... We know that if we're dead in trespasses and sins, we know that if we don't seek after God in and of ourselves, that we are utterly helpless and that we are hell-bound sinners apart from divine intervention. Apart from God intervening in our life in an act of sovereign grace, we are on the road to destruction. But notice what Paul says in verses 4-7 to of Ephesians 2. If verses 1 to 3 describe who we were as unbelievers, you could describe verses 4 to 7 as what God did. This is what God did for you in your salvation. If you've trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, look at all these incredible things God does. He shows you mercy, love. He makes you alive with Christ. He raises you up with Christ. He seats you, as it were, in the heavenly places with Christ, thereby signifying the permanence of your salvation. And He did it so that He could manifest, verse 7, He could manifest the riches of His grace and kindness toward us forever. I mean, what a privilege it is. You as a believer are going to be put on display as a trophy of divine grace for the ages to come in the new heavens and the new earth. What a privilege that is, my friends. And then lastly, verses 8-10, to we have the basis for why all true Christians will be motivated to live their life for the glory of God. So verses 1-3 to of Ephesians 2, who we were. Verses 4-7, to what God did. Verses 8-10, to why we worship. Why we worship the living God. Why we live our lives like Edwards, like Paul, like every believer to the glory of God. Notice verses 8-10. to By grace you've been saved through faith, not of yourselves. The faith was not of yourselves. Okay? And the salvation was not of yourselves. Both salvation and faith are gifts of divine grace. And in case... You're not convinced of that interpretation. Look at verse 9. Not as a result of works so that no one may boast. Nothing you have as a Christian came about by your own merit or your own works. 
You've inherited it. You've received it. And it will never be taken away from you. And then notice verse 10. This is the, this is the outcome. This is the overflow effect of salvation. And this is a good litmus test for you today. Is your life defined by verse 10? Not a profession of faith as important as that is. Not as having a religious experience as valid as that can be. We all have experiences in our Christian life. But the true litmus test of whether or not somebody is saved is the fruit or the evidence of their life. Look, look at verse 10. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. If your lifestyle is not marked by walking in good works, you are not a Christian. That's what Paul is saying here. The believer will continue to fall short of the glory of God. Nobody will model sinless perfection in this life. But by the authority of God's Word, there should be increasing victory over sin. There should be a heart desire to worship God. There should be a marked difference in your life as a believer than the rest of the world. Those are some rich truths to think about in regard to the inheritance that we've received. But that's only gift number one. Paul doesn't stop there in the New Testament when talking about this idea of the believer's inheritance to the glory of God. No, the second gift that all believers will receive in Christ is the gift of residence in God's eternal kingdom. All Christians will inherit the eternal kingdom of God. Not only are you saved from your sins, and not only are you spared from bearing God's wrath and condemnation and judgment for your sins in eternal hell, but now you're brought into a kingdom. You have an eternal home by God's grace. What do I mean by this? Well, this might get into some things that you may not be familiar with. And if you have questions, this would be really good subjects to discuss during our times of group discussion. So please bear with me. Very important biblical truths we're going to talk about. At this current moment in redemptive history, every person who has passed away is either in one of two places right now. They're either in heaven or they're in hell. There is no purgatory. There is no third something. There's no state of limbo. There is two eternal destinies at this moment in time that every person who's ever died has gone to. Either heaven or hell. There's numerous places in the Bible that I could cite to confirm this truth. Let me just give you two passages that make this reality the most clear. We're going to look at 2 Corinthians 5, verses 6-9. to and we're going to look at Colossians chapter 3, verses 5-8. through eight. Now, as you're turning there to the 2 Corinthians passage, let me, let me just say this by way of preface. Where all believers and unbelievers are at right now, theologians have historically referred to that destination as the intermediate state. That's just a fancy term for saying that it is a temporary dwelling until the last day when Christ returns to judge the living and the dead. On the basis of Revelation chapters 20 to 22, we know that there's going to be a time when the people who have gone and passed away to either heaven or hell, they're going to be raised bodily. 
And they're going to receive a body that's either fitting for eternity and the new heavens and the new earth, or a body that is fitting for the lake of fire. And those will be their two eternal dwelling places. And there is, again, there is no third place. It's either the lake of fire or the new heavens and the new earth. So this is the intermediate state depiction that we're talking about here. If you and I were to die right now, you're going to be with God in heaven or you're going to be with God in hell. And someday when Christ returns, you're going to then carry on. If you're a believer, you're going to dwell on the new earth with Christ, with the holy angels, with the redeemed forever and ever. If you're not in Christ and you passed away without coming to saving faith, you're going to be cast into the lake of fire where you will spend eternity with Satan, all of the rebellious angels and all of those who lived a life apart from Christ. So I just want to give you an overarching framework to help us make sense with some of these texts we're reading here. With that in mind, 2 Corinthians 5, 6-9. This is the experience of the believer. This is Paul describing the Christian experience in the intermediate state. Notice what he writes. Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. So, another reality that we need to make note of from that cross-reference. Again, all under the idea of believers inheriting an eternal kingdom. We're getting there. There is no such thing as soul sleep at the moment you die. Whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, you go directly to the intermediate state. You either go to be with Christ and the redeemed and what the Bible calls heaven, or at the moment you die, if you're not a believer, you go into hell. The intermediate state where unbelievers dwell. Notice how Paul describes this reality in Colossians 3 Verses 5 through 8. Go ahead and turn there now. In this text, we find Paul indicating that God's wrath resides on those who remain unconverted. And to do this, he notes lifestyle patterns. All of these lifestyle patterns of sin are in the present tense, indicating that this is an ongoing pattern of life. And this is not an exhaustive list of ongoing sins either. This is just a sampling. The point is, if your lifestyle is marked by ongoing, unrepentant patterns of sinful behavior, you are not a Christian. God's wrath abides on you. You will spend eternity in hell and then in the eternal state, eternity in the lake of fire, if you do not come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. That's the implication from this text and many others that we could cite like it. Notice what he writes. Verse 5 of Colossians 3. Consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also 
Put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. So, we have intermediate state portrayed for the believer and for the unbeliever. Let me give you the eternal state. The eternal state. John chapter 5, verse 28 and 29, and Acts 24, verses 14 to 15. Write these texts down, because here's the thing, my friends. If you encounter those of different denominational persuasions, which we would acknowledge as not being true followers of Christ, you encounter Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, Roman Catholics, you're going to have different understandings of what happens after we die, what are the implications of unbelief, how does that relate to the unbelievers or the believers' experience after physical death. You need to have some text to go to and say, now wait a second now, this is how we understand what the Bible teaches about not only the Gospel, but what happens when we die. What are, what are the implications of believing the Gospel? Where do we go? What do we inherit as believers? What are the implications of rejecting this Gospel? What does the unbeliever, as it were, inherit? That's what we're looking to here. That's why I'm giving you these passages and spending so much time on this reality. So let's look at John 5, 28 and 29. This is from the words of Christ. He says, Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear His voice, and they will come forth, those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Do you see the connection there? How you lived your life is directly tied to where you spend eternity. Not because your works are what saves you, but because your works reveal the state of your heart. Your lifestyle reveals whether or not you truly have believed the Gospel from your heart or whether you have rejected the Gospel from your heart. Acts 24, verses 14 and 15. Listen to this. This is from Paul. This I admit to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, referring to Christianity, I do serve the God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets. So what's Paul saying? He's saying, at this time, I believe the whole Old Testament. That's what he means by the law and the prophets. And what does the law and the prophets teach? Verse 15, having a hope in God, which these men cherish themselves, that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the unrighteous. So this isn't just something taught in the New Testament, is what Paul's saying. The, the Old Testament clearly teaches eternal life, whether as a believer or an unbeliever. So here's how I'm going to land the plane under this second inheritance, this second gift that believers receive. What is your inheritance? What inheritance do you have to look forward to? Are you looking forward to receiving eternal life and whether you die, say, say you die today. If you died right now, would you inherit the presence of the glory of God and of His people in the intermediate state in heaven to later on the last day spend all of eternity on the new heavens and the new earth? 
Is that your inheritance you're looking forward to if you died right now? Because there will be no second chances at your death. Or, conversely, if you're an unbeliever here today, you've not surrendered your life to the Lordship of Christ by faith. If you're here today and you are not a Christian, you will, if I could use the term, inherit an intermediate state in hell, which is dreadful enough as it is, under the wrath of God, bearing His condemnation and judgment for your sins, and then you're going to be resurrected on the last day, you're going to have to give an account before your Creator, and then you're going to be cast into the lake of fire. And of course, it will likewise be to the glory of God. Do you want to glorify God in your salvation and in your service of Him? Or do you want to glorify God by spending eternal, eternity in hell, in the lake of fire, glorifying God in your destruction. God will be glorified either way. But my friends, He gives you the chance right now, today, to be spared judgment, to trust in Christ, to receive His love, His forgiveness, His mercy, His grace. He is calling you today. As surely as I preach this Gospel, if you don't know Christ, you have an opportunity for your inheritance to be in heaven and not in hell. But there's a third and final gift, third and final blessing, we could say, that Paul discusses in connection with the eternal inheritance that he used the term for in Ephesians 1. This is the greatest inheritance of all. And again, this, this is a good corollary, a good segue, if you will, into what I just finished pleading with you. If there's anyone here who's an unbeliever, especially, when you come to faith in Christ, you, you don't just inherit salvation. You don't just inherit a kingdom. You inherit God Himself. Let that sink in. The Christian inherits the living God. You are His possession for eternity. You are the apple of His eye. He lavishes you with blessing after blessing after blessing unending to be enjoyed in His kingdom forever. Not because you're so great. Really, it's because you're so bad that God, in spite of yourself, lavishes you with such eternal riches so you can praise Him all the more for who He is. That's the character of the God who made you in His image, who created the universe and presently upholds and sustains you at this very moment. For the Christian, conversely, for the believer, is this something you think about often? I know a lot of you guys are young, probably very young in your faith, which is fine. We all have different rates of maturity and our sanctification is going to look different at different stages of our lives. But nevertheless, I ask you, believer, and I'm sure there are several here that are perhaps the majority. If you're here today and you know God through faith in Jesus Christ, do you fill your mind with the absolute privilege that it's going to be to see God as He is in glory? To enjoy Him? To have perfect, sinless communion with Him and with other believers forever. To be exactly who God created you to be. Is that something you think about on a regular basis? It's something that Paul thought about. Notice Philippians 1, chapter 21-24. to 24. 
Philippians 1, verses 21 to 24. This is the Apostle Paul's heart. When he thought about the blessing of inheriting God Himself, when he thought about the glory of God revealed through the Gospel, through the redemption of God's elect, this was at the heart and soul of his thinking. I mean, he just couldn't get it out of his mind. Look at what he says here. I pray this would be all of our thinking on a regular basis if you're in Christ. He says, for to me, from my perspective, he says, he's in prison when he's writing this, by the way, to live is Christ, to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I do not know which to choose, but I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better, yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. What's he saying? He's saying this. He's saying, I long to be in the presence of the God of my salvation. Oh, how rich of an experience it will be to be face-to-face with my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But you know what? As long as He's got me here on the earth, I'm going to serve Him with every fiber of my being, whether I'm in a prison cell or I'm in a palace. Whether everything's going according to my preferences and my plan or whether I have absolutely nothing, I will labor on in the flesh because He's worth it. I'm going there someday. I'm going to see Christ someday in glory. And I can't wait for that day, says Paul. But while I'm here today, wherever He has me, I'm giving my all for the glory of God because... Serving Him with my life is worth it. Do you see God in such a light today, friends? Do you live with an eager longing and anticipation to be with the God of your salvation? And in the meantime, do you give every fiber of your being to magnifying His glorious character? To being, to the best of your ability, everything He's called you to be. Repenting when you fall short. Studying God's Word. Fellowshipping with other believers. Running the race of the Christian life with one fixed goal in sight. All of my life to the glory of God. That is my prayer for you, believer, that that would be Something that you adopt as your mentality. And for myself, I'm preaching to myself just as much as I'm preaching to you. And for those of you who don't know Christ, oh, would He be precious to you as you contemplate these incredible gifts that can be yours through faith? How could you turn away from such a kind and merciful God? So on the basis of verses 11 and 12, We've observed how God's glory is revealed through the salvation of the earliest believers. And like I said, all of this is equally true for the salvation of us. Our salvation, our blessings, everything that the earliest believers inherit is everything we will inherit too. This is just the way Paul decided to structure his argument. I think he did it for a pretty particular way. We'll get to that in a moment, but I want to read the verses before we do. Verses 13 and 14, thinking about the salvation of later believers here. Verse 13, 
in Christ, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of His glory. Now the phrase you also is why I decided to, um, to, to, to try to really organize this lesson around the salvation of earliest believers and later believers. Because Paul makes a very pointed distinction in the flow of his argument. And here's why I believe from the testimony of the text itself and having studied a few godly commentators, I believe Paul had a central goal in mind when he wrote um, what he writes in verses 13 and 14 as being narrowly geared towards later believers and what he just wrote in verses 11 and 12 towards early believers. Here's why. Think about those who originally received this letter. Okay? It had been roughly 30 years since Christ ascended to glory. And we know from 2 Peter, and Paul notes this also in 2 Timothy, I believe in 1 Timothy as well, all being written in the 60s AD, some 30 years after Christ ascended. They're having to deal with ridicule from the watching world. Christ isn't coming back. Your faith's a joke. This, that, and the other. Right? All, all the mocking, all the ridicule, we still hear it today some 2,000 years later. On top of that, For those who were faithfully following Christ, they looked at men like Paul, like Peter, like John. All these early believers who saw Christ, walked with Christ, were given power and authority over demons. They were able to perform miracles. There would have been a real temptation for them on top of all the bombardment that was coming from the outside world. There would have been a real temptation for them to say, well, of course These men are so sold out for Christ. I mean, look at everything that they got to experience. They could perform miracles. They wrote the New Testament. They saw Christ. There's no shock to me that they would have this kind of faith and this kind of perspective. But, you know, me, and I just got saved last year. I I never knew Christ. I never saw Christ. I never walked with Him. I can't perform miracles. I'm not a leader in the church. Surely I'm a, a lesser Christian than, than these guys were. My friends, Paul anticipated such thought. And here's what he wanted his readers some 30 years after Christ ascended into glory to know. And here's what he wants you and I to know today. Because we fall into this category. We fall into the you also category of verses 13 and 14. Paul wants us to know that our salvation, our spiritual blessings, our inheritance, everything that is a part of our Christian life, it is just as genuine, just as authentic, just as valuable, just as effectual, just as glorious as anybody else's. There's no second class Christians. There's no hierarchy of spirituality within the kingdom of God. He is a merciful, gracious, and loving Father. And if you're in Christ, you have every spiritual blessing today in 2022 
as the earliest Christians had 2,000 years ago. That's, that, that, that's really the organizing structure, I believe, as to why Paul really took the time to say, oh, and by the way, you guys, you later Christians, don't forget, you have some r- remarkable blessings as Christians, just like the previous guys had. So be encouraged, believer. If you're here today and you're in Christ, be encouraged. Just because you're young, just because you're living 2,000 years after these events take place, that doesn't mean that your salvation is any less important or any less real or any less effectual to allow you to inherit what Paul and all the other saints have inherited that have gone before you. But with that in mind, let's look back to verse 13 and 14. We now have noted the organizing structure. We've now seen Paul stress that all Christians have inherited the same salvation, the same blessings. Start in the middle of verse 13 into verse 14 now. You also, having also believed, you were sealed in Him. This is talking to us. You were sealed in Christ with the Holy Spirit of promise who is given as a pledge of our inheritance. So according to the Apostle Paul here, a person is sealed in Christ with the Holy Spirit immediately after believing the Gospel. Now here's a new term that some of you, you may be familiar with the concept, but the term might be a little bit different. It's the word that Paul uses for sealed. How many of you guys have seen the real fancy stamps that go on the back of a letter? You know what I'm talking about? Think, think like European, British movies. Some of you girls watched Downton Abbey. Yeah, I see some hands up. Right, those real fancy stamps, right? That's the idea that Paul is communicating here. During the first century world, which is when Paul wrote this letter, written correspondence, cattle, and other important objects, they were imprinted with a stamp. And that stamp would signify ownership. It would signify the source to which that letter, that cattle, that property, whatever that had the stamp, that, that object belonged to the person representing or the person being represented by the stamp. So if I stamp a letter with my seal, I'm signifying I'm the source. That letter came from me. And whatever's being testified to in that letter is exactly what I want spoken. It's exactly what I want to be testified to. It's the same with salvation, Paul says. When Paul speaks of being sealed in Christ with the Holy Spirit, he's saying that God's stamp of ownership is upon every Christian. If you're in Christ, God has put His stamp of ownership on you. And you are just as much His as any other person who's ever been saved. You are just as valuable in the sight of God. Christ died just as much for you as He did for anybody else. All because God is gracious and all because He is going to glorify Himself in and through your redemption. That's what's being meant by sealed. Now what's Paul saying about this idea of pledge? How is the Holy Spirit as a seal 
as a stamp of God's ownership, as, as a way of signifying that God is the source of our salvation, how does that Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, how does He also function as a pledge? It's another term we need to unpack from these verses to understand what Paul is trying to say. The term he uses for pledge is the same term that was used in the first century world of engagement rings. Now, how many of you guys are familiar with an engagement ring? What does the engagement ring signify? Signifies the man who proposed to the woman to be married. That man is promising them, I love you and at a future time I am going to bring to fulfillment my promise to spend my life with you. It's, it's a very similar reality to how the Holy Spirit functions in the Christian Just like an engagement ring signifies a man's promise to marry the woman whom he loves, so also does the indwelling Holy Spirit signify God's promise to bring every Christian into the eternal kingdom that they will inherit by divine right because of the grace of God manifested to the believer through their faith in Christ. When you came to faith, if you're here today and you're a follower of Christ, when you came to saving faith, God sent His Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, to dwell in you. That Holy Spirit is God's stamp of approval. He's saying, that person belongs to me. And the Holy Spirit is going to begin to make your life from the moment you get saved to the moment that Christ returns or calls you home. That Holy Spirit, He is going to make you more into the moral likeness of Jesus Christ. And as He does, when you become more and more like Christ, that stamp becomes more visible to a watching world. But from God's perspective, that stamp is on you from the moment you get saved. From, so, so, so regardless of where you start as a believer, to regardless of where you finish, and there should be a marked improvement the longer you live and the longer you are a Christian. But regardless of where you are on that spectrum, you're God's. He's the source of your salvation. He's saying that He is your owner. He's your master. He's your Lord. That's never going to change. But then on top of that, beyond that reality, God, when He sends the Holy Spirit to dwell in the believer, here's what God's saying. He's saying, hey, believer, this is my promise. Everything I've promised in my Word, it's all going to come to pass. When you die, or when I send my Son at the appointed time to return to judge the living and the dead, everything you will inherit as my adopted son or daughter in Christ, it's yours in full. It's coming to you. This is your promise, believer. What an encouraging truth that we have to think about as Christians. So how do you know, right? How do I know if I have the Holy Spirit? Well, it goes back to Ephesians 2.10 and other parts of Scripture. You want to know if you have the Holy Spirit? Two key questions you need to ask yourself. Number one, does your heart beat for the glory of God? I mean, when you think, like, like, like what drives my life? Do I, re- do I love God? Do I want to serve Him with all of my time, talent, and treasure? Do I want to put them on display? What is my heart? There's the internal test. Have I believed the gospel? Have I truly believed the gospel? And then there's the external test. 
Okay? So yes, I, I tell myself, yes, I love God. Yes, I want to live for His glory. Yes, I believe the gospel. I've done all those things. I, I can check all those boxes, preacher. What, what's next? Well, external test. Does your lifestyle reflect the internal? You say you've believed. You say you've trusted. You say you love God. Does your life show that? Your life does not earn salvation. Your good works does not merit God's favor or forgiveness. But know this, the fruit of your life, the evidence of your life, it will tell you the state of your heart. Jesus said, out of the overflow of one's mouth manifests the state of their heart. Jesus said that a bad tree cannot produce good fruit, nor can a, uh, a good tree produce bad fruit. If you are saved, your lifestyle pattern will be marked by repentance and a growing desire to conform your life to Scripture. So that's my test for all of us. For, for, for us who acknowledge ourselves as followers of Christ. Internal test. Do I love God? Have I believed the Gospel? Do I want to glorify God in my life? And then external, what does my lifestyle look like? When I make a mistake, do I confess it and repent to the Lord? Have I had victory over sin in my life? Those are some good questions to ask, among others that we can talk about during small group time. But maybe you're here today and you're an unbeliever, and you've listened to four lessons now. You've now been exposed to arguably the most rich passage in the New Testament. I mean, I mean, literally, it doesn't get any deeper than this. And we barely scratched the surface. A lot of preachers spend 30 sermons on this part of Scripture. I, I did four. Um, here would be my plea and my prayer for you. What in your life do you see as worthy of clinging to in order to reject the Gospel? What is it right now and the quiet of your heart, if you're here today and, and you know, you know you're not saved. You, you just know it, right? I, I guarantee there's at least one person here who's there right now as I'm preaching. You know you're not a Christian. Here's what I ask you. What is it? What are you holding on to? Why would you not receive God's free forgiveness? Why would you not surrender your life to a good and gracious Father who sent His Son into the world to make your forgiveness of sin accomplished, to allow you to have a relationship with Him. How could we, how could we reject such an incredible Creator? I hope that you've had a lot to think about over the last four lessons. Again, it's been my joy and privilege to give these sermons. I know it's a lot to chew on. I know I preached for a really long time. But I did the very best I could to set before you the riches of God's glory in this passage. And I pray that as all of us leave this place, we will take the truths we've just considered in our mind. Remember we said this at the very beginning of Gospel Camp. I want us to take what we've heard and what we've thought about and I want us to put it into practice and I want us to surrender to it and be shaped by it. That would be my prayer, whether it be today or at some appointed time in the future. My prayer is all of you 
would walk with Christ and that He would be your all in all for your spiritual good and for God's supreme glory. Let us pray. We'll be dismissed to small groups. Father, over the past 24 hours, our hearts and minds have been exposed to some of the weightiest verses that are found in Your Word. I, I know, Lord, that I, I couldn't even scratch the surface of this text. And Father, I pray You would overcome my frailties, my limitations, to speak to the hearts of those who are listening to this message and have, have listened to the other three that we've done, Father. Lord, by Your Spirit, I pray You would convict those here today who don't know You. I reckon there's at least one, possibly more. You know, Lord. You know our heart. You know exactly where we are. You decreed it from before the foundation of the world. But we also know that in Scripture it testifies You use prayer and You use the preaching of Your Word as a means to save Your elect. So I pray, Father, right now, I pray, God, bring somebody here who doesn't know You to saving faith, Lord. Help them to see their desperate condition apart from You. Lord, make it to where they can't escape what's been said this weekend. Do whatever it takes to bring them to faith, Father. And in doing so, Lord, may they know that it's not because you're mean. It's not because you're a tyrant, Lord. It's because you're kind. It's your kindness that leads sinners to repentance. Paul wrote, writes in Romans 2. And Father, for those here who are unbelievers that don't know you, Lord, would they taste your kindness? Would they see that you were good? Would they surrender their lives to Christ by faith? Lord, I also pray for those here today who I imagine are considerably in the majority, those who know you through faith in Christ. Father, keep us humble, Lord. These are, these are weighty truths. We cannot fully wrap our minds around them. For, forgive us for the times that we've, that we've failed to live up to our calling as Christians. And Lord, motivate us as we reflect on how the gospel is revelation of God's glory, that all of our salvation and all of reality is to the praise of your glory. I pray, Father, that the believers here would leave this place more motivated than ever before to serve you where you've placed them. Lord, that the, like, like Edwards, like Paul, like Peter, like John, and most perfectly, like Christ, that they would make the epicenter of their life, solely Deo Gloria, to God alone be the glory. Whatever the cost, whatever the calling, would we as your people bring glory to your name through how we live and how we worship you. As we now break out into our time of small groups, Father, I pray you would superintend the discussions, help the kids to take it seriously, help them to have boldness to ask questions, whether it be about what's been discussed or anything regarding Christianity. Lord, give them boldness to not leave this place with questions unanswered. And Father, for the leaders who are going to be presiding over these discussions, my prayer is You would give us wisdom by Your Spirit to answer any questions and to guide the conversation in a way that makes sense to the kids, 
And Father, that would give them clarity as to everything we've discussed or anything else they want to discuss during that time. I thank you again for Gospel Camp. I thank you again for the privilege it's been to fellowship with these young men and women and the adult leaders. I pray for a blessing upon them as we leave in a few hours, that you would keep them and their families safe as they head home, and that they would enjoy a relaxing rest of their weekend and a good start to the new week. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.